welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is UO alumna Kimberly Johnson. She is the interim vice provost for undergraduate education and student success at the University of Oregon. Previously, she held the positions of assistant vice provost for advising and director of academic advising. Johnson graduated from UO with a Bachelor of Science degree in Ethnic Studies in 2001 and one went on to earn her Master's of College Student Counseling and Personnel Services at the University of Maryland. Johnson is also a writer. Her novel, This Is My America, was published in 2020 by Random House. The book won the Pacific Northwest Book Award, the Young Adult Library Services Association Top 10 Best Fiction Award, and the International Library Association's Notable Books for a Global Society. Her novel also received recognition as an NPR concierge best books and Kirkus best fiction, Amazon teachers pick, and a junior, junior library guild and project lit community book selection. The book has also been chosen for the Spirit of Texas and Humanities of Tennessee, eighth through 12th grade reading programs for their respective states. This is My America was also selected as part of UO's 2020-2021 common reading programming for first year students listen, learn, act. Thanks, Kim, for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Um, it's, it's great to just connect with my own community um, about the work that I'm doing. So thank you for the invitation. Well, um, tell us a bit about your background growing up in Eugene and your undergraduate experience at the U of O. Yeah, so, you know, I moved to Eugene when I was five years old. My, my mother is actually Zambian. Um, African and um, and my father grew up in Eugene and so when I went you know when I was five I actually was born in Zambia um, moved here um, but really all I've ever known is Eugene in terms of like my my growing foundation and um, you know I'm 42 <laughs> and so that was a while ago and and growing up in Eugene I often found myself being the one of um, the one of in terms of a person of color, not even just a, a black person say in a classroom. And so, you know, part of my growing up is sort of you, you sort of figure out how you navigate that world. And for me, I navigated it with a lens of social justice and, and not only just thinking about the experience of, of sort of black people sort of growing up in a mostly predominantly white community, but just broadly from LGBTQI populations to um, just being a voice of, di of difference and, and how do you do that? And, um, you know, a lot of that sort of painted my picture of, of what I wanted to focus on. And, and I think my values of, that I that I utilize now in terms of my role with higher ed, and it was a scholarship that kept me here um, in, in Eugene at the beginning at the University of Oregon. Right now, it's it's considered the Diversity Excellence Scholarship, but at the time, it was the Underrepresented Minority Achievement Scholarship, something that all my sisters received and and many of my close underrepresented friends that sort of kept us and created a community at the U of O and a community that was. Um, surrounded on using your voice and figuring out how to use your voice and how do you create your own spaces when some of those spaces weren't created for you. Um, and, you know, I, and a lot of people ask like, you know, but you came back and what was that like? And I actually feel like I found myself when I was a student and growing up because I had to really explore and unpack who am I? 
when the world is trying to tell me who I am and what I'm supposed to be. And, you know, I, I truly found myself in my undergraduate experience by being involved in leadership and, and service. I think I actually remember most about my student activism and engagement and um, learning how to facilitate meetings and put programs and projects together. I learned that foundation actually as a, as a student in the co-curricular activities that I, that I did. Um, but I also went on to be an, an ethnic studies major. I was the first, uh, I was part of the first cohort that graduated. There was five of us in that major that graduated because I also was just so enamored with understanding history and underrepresented populations history. And, and now that I've sort of moved on into administration, I really never let that go, that, that passion of looking at those areas. So how, how did you become a writer? I mean, you, you've told a story about sort of how you became an academic administrator and why, you, why you're an activist in the ways you are, but why writing? How, how did you get there? You know, it's really interesting how sort of life sort of puts you, puts different things in your, in front of you that sort of set you on a particular path. My path never began with writing. Um, I, you know, the part of Eugene that I grew up in was, um, uh, I went to North Eugene High School, which is a, a low, lower, at least at the time, lower socioeconomic, mostly white, rural, lower middle class group that didn't necessarily have some of the highest college going um, experiences and so add that on top of being a marginalized person and I didn't really find that I had teachers or at least the way that I, the way that I was experiencing the class I didn't feel like I was getting a lot of the the like support that would say hey this looks great keep trying and so I really avoided writing for a very long time I selected my senior thesis in high school to not actually write. I, I didn't write the senior thesis. I did a photojournalistic um, um, representative sort of like project uh, portfolio um, rather than writing because I was scared to, to, to write. Um, I My graduate program, I mean, I was terrified even though it wasn't like I wasn't getting good grades in my classes, but it was something that I just felt that I was, wasn't very confident at. And, um, at the time, 10 years ago, is actually when I started writing at 32 years old. I had just um, finished taking some um, exploratory graduate uh, programs. I was, I was considering pursuing completing my PhD, which I had started earlier. And I took those courses and I had the final papers that I did. And I just was overwhelmed again in feeling like could I ever be an academic? Could I actually write, write a research paper? And, and the way that my life was going, I was just very busy with my professional career. I was doing really well. And I decided that I wanted something else that I could do more independently and maybe avoid that. And um, I woke up one day, like not any different than many days that I wake up filled with a dream in my head of a story. And um, that was drawing me so much that I actually just got up and went to a bookstore and started writing the concept of this story. And, um, and, and then I just kept going. And, you know, and, and I, I joked that my husband was like, no, you just wanted to get out of the house because we had a little kid and I was new in the area. And, um, and it was actually my own sort of very independent. I didn't have to, you know, coach anyone, support anyone because I'm a manager, a supervisor, I could just do it on my own. And I realized that all those years 
that I was so afraid of, of, of writing, I still was always a storyteller. I was always problem solving. I, I was always sort of thinking about when I would read a story or I would watch you know, a film that I was actually breaking down those stories and retelling them all the time. I just never put them on the page. And then I fell in love with writing and, um, and I would read more. And at the time it also was the young adult literature space was starting to expand around having diverse, um, diverse stories written by um, um, authors of the other representations. They called it in sort of own voices. And um, I was so excited by that, about exploring storytelling. And so by the time This Is My America came out, it was the third book that I had like just written on my own that, you know, that wasn't published. And my first two novels, I really was just self-taught of teaching myself, how do you tell a story? How do you do dialogue tags? I mean, I was at the very, very basic level of it, but, you know, um, parts of me, is saddened by if I what would have happened if I would have been you know supported earlier in terms of my writing but the other part of me it actually is so freeing because I'm not sort of set on um how I was taught to tell stories that I actually can create new ways in which a storytelling and and break up the genre in different ways and and especially the way that I merged my sort of um understanding of, of history, a passion with nonfiction and that kind of work and being able to tell a fictional story. You know, I don't know what kind of storyteller I would have been if I would have maybe been crafted in earlier of like, oh, no, no, this is what it takes to be a successful writer. Would you be willing to read us a passage from This Is My America? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to read from the first chapter. Uh, my work uh, with every chapter, actually, I, I don't use chapter um, numbers, I use chapter titles um, as a way to sort of prepare and engage the reader. And um, the first chapter is called Ready, Set, Go. Time runs my life, a constant measuring of what's gone and what's to come. Jamal's 100 meter dash is a blazing 10.06 seconds. That's how my older brother got this monumental interview. I'm not thinking about Jamal's record though. I'm thinking about daddy's time. Seven years, 2,532 days served to be exact. This running clock above my head's been in place since his conviction. That moment branded me. Mama gripped the courtroom bench to keep from collapsing as each juror repeated guilty. I looked to mama for an explanation. The empty look in her eye cried out the answer, death. Since then, it's tick tock. Here at the TV station, Jamal rocks steadily in the guest chair, watching highlights of his track career with the producer during a commercial break. He glides his hands over his fresh barber cut, his mind more likely on the camera angles that'll best show his ways. We're true opposites, despite our one year difference. He's patient, calm, thinking, living, loving. He's everything on the outside I wish to be, bringing people in when nine out of 10, I'd rather push them out. That's why I hate that my mission crashes paths with the biggest day of Jamal's life, five minutes and 37 seconds until showtime. As the commercial nears its end, I don't have to look up to know mama's leaving the makeup room. 
The click of her heels echoes past a crew of engineers and radiates as she circles around Jamal to the guest seating area on the side of the studio stage. She enters like only a proud black mother can, hair all pressed and curled with a sharp black skirt suit that fits her curvy figure. Mama's been name dropping everywhere she can about the news anchor Susan Turk showcasing Jamal as a top athlete. I expected a live audience, but the set is a small studio and crew. I look out the Susan Turk's interview desk with a backdrop image of Austin, the state capital. They pull out a white couch so there's space for my family to join Jamal at the end. Mama smiles at Jamal, then at my little sister, Corinne, but I swear she throws me some solid shade my way. Her not so subtle warnings have been going on for the past month. She knows I want daddy's story to seep out but mama has made clear there is no room for daddy on this occasion. Not because she don't love daddy, but because she wants Jamal to have a clean slate at college as Jamal, not Jamal, the son of a murderer. If it was a few years ago, I'd understand, but daddy's got less than a year, no extensions, no money for more appeals. While time uncoils itself from daddy's lifeline, she's forbidden Susan Turret from mentioning him too. The show agreed not to talk about daddy in exchange for Jamal showing up. And if Susan tries anything, mama says we'll straight up leave. Mama stands by me and leans near my ear. Tracy, ain't it something to see your big brother's hard work paying off? Mm-hmm, I say even though I'm still hoping the journalist and Susan can't help but fling open Pandora's box on live television. Mama won't be able to stop it then. Then our truth can breathe free. The fight for daddy's appeal won't be in vain. People will finally hear the truth. Wake up to the fact that liberty, Lady Liberty has failed us, failed so many others. Thank you so much for reading that passage. It's um, the very beginning of the novel. It immediately grips the reader. This is an amazing novel. It grapples with some of the most challenging and urgent problems of our time, structural racism, the death penalty, the injustice of the US justice system, mass incarceration, the endurance of white supremacist hate groups. Why did you choose to write about such tough issues in a book for young adult readers? Why, why did you make that choice? You know, I am so amazed uh, in my 20, almost 20 years working with young people about their ability to grapple with incredibly difficult topics um, with many assumptions that they can't handle it when I see how much they actually handle in their life. And um, that's why I love young adult literature so much, especially now. I mean, there is some really incredible work that are pushing the envelope in the ways that we don't, we haven't necessarily seen in adult, especially when we think about adult, um, you know, a, a adult work, um, but having diverse authors and, and the kinds of focuses that they have. And, you know, part of that I think is connected to my, my work, uh, you know, in working with young people and why I do, which for me, it's about thinking about the next generation. And, um, you know, when I, when I started to write in, about this particular story and was thinking about this story, it really was around the time period of the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement and my work with Black students and how they were feeling. And, and the students were experiencing when they were seeing the death of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and just on and on and on. 
um, it was very parallel to my own experience as a young person in 1992 when Rodney King, um, you know, had been beaten brutally by police officers. There was video footage, sort of the first sort of time that we've been able to see the sort of video footage in that way and how broken it felt the system was because of what, what happened, which was, you know, that they they didn't, there was no sort of repercussions for, for the abuse that they did with, with Rodney King. And that really was what helped me think about, uh, we have to try to do something different. And there wasn't a book for me when I was that age that I could actually process and understand how systemic these issues are, that it's not actually about police officers. Um, that it is far beyond that. It is systemic um, and it continues to persist because we haven't recognized how much connected it is, not only to our time period now, but since the beginning of, um, of you know, Black people arriving to this country as enslaved people. So you've, you've already started to answer my next question, but maybe you can elaborate a little more. I was going to ask, what are the lessons you're hoping readers take from the novel? And you've clearly already started explaining about raising consciousness about structural inequities and structural racism, but are there other lessons that you hope your readers take? Yeah, you know, I wrote intentionally to um, have there be a call to action and a main character that can help any reader sort of see themselves about the determination that's needed to seek justice in a, in a way that is empowering versus what we often see is, um, you know, um, crying out for help at people who maybe aren't willing to do anything else. And so how can we, you know, show people that you actually can be engaged and involved and not only just Tracy, the main character, who is really the, the one who's at the helm. She's willing to write letters. She's willing to run Know Your Rights workshop. She's willing to do dangerous things um, to try to free her father. But I, I, it also was important to me and what I would want readers to learn about is that I didn't want it to just be a story about what happens to a black family when they're impacted. I wanted to show the community and being very intentional in having this sort of like additional relationship um, by having white um, white people in this particular story so that readers could begin to see themselves of like, these aren't things that are just happening to other people that you, you that you actually are living in a society um, where they are your neighbors, they, they could be your friends um, that are living a very different life than you are. And, and my hope is that um, readers are able to not only see themselves in the story, but see how some of those intersect and maybe who they want to be um, so that they can be engaging and, and, and recognize it. The last is the humanity. I think far too often it's been about the bodies of black people that, that have been injured or killed and not the actual life that not only was lost, but the family. Um, I think of George Floyd and we think, I, I, I think about his daughter, that her life has completely changed. And, you know, um, how the rest of her life persists. Her children, if she has children, um, what, what happens into that community is it doesn't just stop with, with that. And, and those are the takeaways um, that I hope. The last, actually one more takeaway, especially for, for um, you know, readers who are like, what do I do? I, I, I want to do something. I think that there's, 
you know, that there's this sort of like images that stick with people about how do I make this change in something that seems so overwhelming. And oftentimes it's like, but I don't, I don't want to protest. I, 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 that's not for me. I want to do something different. And it was really important to me to model that in the story that there's a lot of ways to use your voice. Um, but it's important that whatever way that you that you engage is that you are doing something versus sort of sitting back and, and feeling like hopeless. Well, the, the book shows that writing is a kind of activism. I mean, it's it's you, you, the book itself does all this amazing political work, this social justice work. It's really quite an impressive accomplishment. It's it's such a wonderful such a wonderful novel, and I would urge our our uh, viewers to uh, read it and share it widely because it's such a great book. Kim, I'm wondering, you've already told us a little bit about how your work in higher education uh, administration and leadership and advising um, helped to inform your career as a writer. Has your career as a writer informed your career as a higher education administrator? You know, it really has begun to do that. And, you know, I think part of it is that, um, I, I think it's 2020, you know, it's sort of this combination of having with my book release, it being 2020, that there being an openness, a widened openness for people to want to actually talk about these issues or, or just even think about what do I do? I, I, I want to change things needs to, to stop. And I think that that has helped me as an administrator to think about that I do actually have more power than I think, you know, for, for many years, I kind of felt of that, like, you know, you know, what are the things that we are allowed to talk about at work? I think that there's been, there's often a culture about like, oh, we don't bring politics into work or, oh, that's too political, but um, my existence is political and the absence of being able to talk about those things is so problematic because it's ignoring, um, my community and many other communities that we're not able to have these sort of engaging conversations, especially in the setting of higher education. I think we're, we're different than any, almost any other kind of environment where you have your corporate office or other kinds of things is that we are actually in an environment of understanding, right? Like we're in a space of learning and that should be modeled in, in all that we do. And so I think it definitely has influenced um, my role. I, I even think about the training that I have with with advisors is how can I actually actualize that activism in the work that we do every day. And and one of those examples is um, you know a lot of times within our our, our students often uh, face mental health challenges, and that's a very common thing at universities. It's increasing more and more. But how do we respond? to it and especially for communities of color when when that's sort of appeared in certain ways um you might call the police for example because oh i'm scared there's someone acting erratic or very different what do i need to do and so for me as a leader i looking at how do i model how do i actually help my workforce my, my staff workforce have the skills so that they can um, support a student that maybe they actually don't need the police to come, but maybe they actually need cahoots to come or counseling to come, or, you know, it, you know, is, is it violent? It's not violent. So what do I need to respond? And so that's, that's a, a very new thing for me um, in, in outreaching, actually, actually physically out, outreaching to cahoots to see if we can engage and partner and really hoping that there's some partnerships there. But um, I think I now feel like I have more, um, space to push the envelope in ways that I felt like I still was balancing 
how to do it. And I, I think the campus is looking for that leadership as well. I, mean, I think they're looking for, for direction. And so I think the timing is really right. So you've just talked really uh, helpfully about how you're trying to influence the leadership of those you work with. Can you say a little bit about how you try to foster leadership among the students that you work with? Yeah, I mean, you know, I am a true believer in, you know, that that students actually are, they're, they're learning in a lot of different ways. It's not just the classroom. And I have worked with mostly black student leaders. That's usually who I, I, I engage in often. And so I'll use that as an example is um, that so, sometimes you just have to let them figure it out. And, and I think oftentimes we, we try to like coach, and, oh, don't do that, don't do this. And my approach has been like, you're grown up. <laughs> you have decisions to make. If you're wanting my advice, this is how I would approach it. Or like, oh, I'm not sure if you should do it this way, but maybe you should think about that way. But then it's, it's their opportunity to, to learn. And sometimes you do learn from failure. And, and, and pick up and, and figure out those pieces. And so, you know, I really um, engage in like that. I'm also an advisor to um, a historical black sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And um, I am the advisor for the Oregon State University and University of Oregon campuses for that group. And um, I work through empowering leadership. So, you know, they do programs and service and, and there's so much leadership that happens there um, and that, that they grow and learn. And I, and I love to sort of see them do that. And sometimes it's super frustrating <laughs> because I'm like, I want to do it because I know how to do it, but like you have to allow them to figure out how to do it on their own. And the last is just, I think as, as, a, as a leader wanting to create an environment where as advisors, we are, we are not being prescriptive with our students. And we actually are having them be the author of their own experiences here at the U of O. We just need to actually get out of the way and remove those barriers and provide the information that they actually can take and, and do and choose on their own. And I think that is so empowering for um, building our young adults so that when they graduate, they actually leave and know how to navigate and make decisions on their own. Uh, and again, sometimes you do have to kind of allow failure, still be there as a support, <laughs> you know, and, and, and knowing those sort of roadblocks, but, um, you know, but supporting them in that way so that, that they can grow from their experiences as a student. So we're coming to the end of our time. I just have a couple of other questions. I'm wondering if you could tell us what writers have influenced you as a writer? There's so many, um, you know, when I look at the, 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 adult, uh, the adult space, you know, picking up my first book by Toni Morrison, Nikki Giovanni, um, Zora Neale Hurston, um, you know, all of the sort of the, the greats in, in, in literature that, that I never read when I, before I turned 18, getting to college. I mean, that, all of those, I think were just so pivotal in more the recognition of like, I am in literature. Like I am in stories and, and that's a huge influence. And there are now newer writers that I absolutely just love. And Jasmine Ward is one of them. She has such a, a evocative, beautiful heart, heartbreaking because of her own sort of personal story and how much that bleeds into the stories that she writes. Such a huge um, influence for me. Um, you know, in my work. And then with the young adult, there's just a million. 
authors that 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 you know that I that I look at from Jason Reynolds to um, you know Angie Thomas's work has been really wonderful, and some more recent newer writers like Christina Hammonds Reed and um, yeah, there's I mean Renee Watson who is a who's a fellow Oregonian. I mean I think just a lot of incredible work. There's too many. There's <laughs> there's way way too many, and I feel like I take bits of of learning of like oh I love the way that they did that, and I love the way that they they did that, that I think helps me grow as a writer. So my last question, if you can answer it, um, what are you working on now in your writing? Yeah, I, I will answer it because my deal announcement will be coming out this week, <laughs> this week or next week, but I'm working on another young adult called Invisible Sun, and um, S-O-N, and it will be based in Portland, uh, and it will be very focused on the 2020 um um, year uh, for a young black boy based in Portland who uh, leaves a juvenile detention facility um, for something that he didn't do and he arrives right on the heels of the pandemic and it's it's about um, his own mystery that he's trying to resolve about what happened to him and his, and his circumstances but just being a young black boy in an in a almost white community that deal that's dealing with its own displacement. Um, so it's based in, in Northeast Portland um, on top of all of the sort of isolation that he has to deal with after coming from a detention and then um, a racial reckoning on race. So um, I really wanted to tell a story to help, you know, um, young readers unpack what they experience, especially black readers, what they have experienced in 2020. And I did not want to wait 10 years or 20 years to write the historical version of it. Um, I really wanted to be very present and bearing witness and, and, and giving those young people who haven't found um, some, some place for them to maybe unpack their experiences. Well, that sounds like an incredible uh, second book. We're really looking forward to its publication. Thank you, Kim Johnson, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with UL alumna Kimberly Johnson. She is the Interim Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education and Student Success at the University of Oregon. Johnson is also the author of This Is My America, published in 2020. Thanks so much for watching. Music